0: Welcome back to Guidebooks, Books, the podcast where we journey through the world of books and bookshops. On this episode,
1: I think we need to step back and actually acknowledge what a unique space bookstores are. They are private spaces where intensely public quests unfold. They are commercial spaces where you don't have to practice commerce. They are spaces where ages, genders, ethnicities, classes, everybody makes it. With time and with capitalism and with so many fractured systems around us, these spaces are shrinking. And there's something to really hold on to.
0: Diwan is a story, not just a story. And today we will hear the story of this Egyptian bookshop from its founder, Nadia Wassef. Open in 2002 as the only independent bookstore of its kind in Egypt, Diwan enchants its patrons with its mix of East and West, old and new, serious and playful. They say, our approach is to enrich our clients' lives by transforming the act of buying a book into a cultural, artistic and culinary experience and offering them a visually appealing and relaxing ambias every time they step into our stores. It is all about intentionality. Every detail is thought through from the name, Diwan, to the aesthetic of the bookshops and of course to their wide book selection in Arabic but also English, French and German. If you cannot visit Cairo and Diwan at the moment, what you can do is read Nadia Vasev's very recently published book, Shelf Life Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller. The book will take you back in time to visit the Cairo of long ago through the eyes of a charming bookseller. It will make you even more aware of the meaning of a bookshop for a community, even in times as troubling as a revolution. Nadia kindly agreed to chat with me today about Diwan, her all-time favorite books, and what success means for a bookshop. Hi Nadia, welcome to Guide Books, very excited to have you here today. Where are you joining us from?
1: Hi Antonia, I'm joining you from London and I'm very happy to be with you today. I know that your bookstores are are
0: not in London, so I'll take you back uh, kind of mentally to Egypt. And I was wondering if you could take us on a virtual tour of one of your bookshops, uh, Divan. I know now there are several different locations, but maybe if you want to pick your favorite and take us on a bit of a tour.
1: Well, my favorite is always going to be my firstborn, uh, Zamalik, the flagship. I can see it in my mind's eye. I'm standing across the street. I'm looking at the royal blue and white sign that says 26th of July Street, Shera Sittawashrin Yulio. There's the logo of Diwan in black on the side of the building. And there's a beautiful jacaranda tree bowing over the front door. And um, you walk through and it's like you've canceled out the noise, the bustle. It's almost like you walk into stillness. Um, You enter into a foyer, there are five steps with um, wrought iron fair forger uh, black uh, railings and um, you turn right. And I remember at the time I had read, um, when we were researching for Diwen, I had read an article that said that most people, when they walk into a bookstore, turn right. And based on this sort of random, arbitrary fact, and also the quieter side of the building was towards the right. So that's where we put a book section of it. And there, all of the bookshelves were in mahogany with a matte stainless steel finish. And we had incandescent lighting on these tracks, sort of staring down at you. What was beautiful at the time is that we had you know, English books and Arabic books, but in the middle, there was this section called Egypt Essentials. Which was basically a mixture of um, languages and genres covering the subject of Egypt. And so, you know, you had a mix of guidebooks, ancient Egypt uh, thrillers like Christian Jacques and uh, Wilbur Smith wrote, you had uh, books about Coptic uh, Christianity, you had uh, contemporary Egypt, you had the novels, you had the cookbooks. It was just this homage or this um, looking at Egypt from all sorts of different angles across time in different languages. And I think that that somehow this this cluster of shelves in many ways is uh, a synecdoche of our lives, of our country, of, of so much. And then you sort of turn left and you enter into the hub, which is the cafe, and coming out of the cafe, and it's this big open space where all the different sections, so the teenage section, the children's section, the book section, and across the other side was the multimedia section. And this is a testament to how old U.N. is and how old I feel, that this multimedia section no longer exists, of course, because the consumption of multimedia now is a completely virtual endeavor and i was trying to remember actually when was the last time that i bought a film or a cd and i can't remember but uh, i'm very proud of the fact that the consumption of books is still a very human endeavor and uh, and that's a testament to books i think and books I-
0: And we saw that in the recent years, actually last year during the pandemic as well, the sales of books went up, which is great news. I'm not sure if that was also the case in Egypt, but that was definitely the case in the U.S. and the U.K. and other um, countries in Europe as well. So that's always a good thing to see. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back a bit to the, to the origin story since you talked about your first shop. I read an article recently about your new book, which we'll come to. And I read that the idea of opening a bookshop uh, came to you during a dinner party with friends when you were asked if you could do anything, what would you do? And together with your sister, you both said at the same time that you would open a bookshop. Can you tell me a little bit more about this?
1: Well, speaking for me personally, I was uh, at a crossroads in my life. Um, My father had just passed away. I was a little bit disillusioned with my career at that time in gender and development. If I had to put words to it, I felt sad and I felt a huge void in my life. And that was on a personal level. On a more um, national level, Egypt in 2001, I think, was a land of hope and optimism. There were economic reforms being put into place. Egyptians who had studied abroad were coming back to be a part of their country's um, future. And on a literary level, there was also this, um, you know, there was a doctor, a dentist called Alaa El aswani who wrote a book called uh, "Imarat Ya'oubian, The Akubian Building. And this was a book, the significance of this is twofold. One is that el Aswani was a dentist. So he wasn't a professional writer. He wasn't part of this literary intelligentsia. He was somebody who took writing as a part-time hobby. And Amarat Ya'oubian became the Egyptian bestseller that people across different societies, different walks of life, people who are not readers, who might just pick up a newspaper and read it every so often, read this book. And so you had a catalyst in the sense that you had a change in the identity of writer, and this renewed interest and accessibility and, and books became, or the act of writing a book or and reading a novel became a national pastime, and people were discussing it. And I remember I would, you know, we were selling it in Diwen. Uh, I saw it being sold in newspaper kiosks on the pavements. It was everywhere. And I think this is something, I mean, I always look at it to me as, as a signifier of a change. And so this cultural scene was beginning to boil over in a sense. And, and you had economic reforms, you had a stock market, you had structural adjustment policies being changed. And in a sense, the one thing that you didn't have was the modern bookstore. And this is something that I keep coming back to and saying, we had a lot of bookstores in Cairo, we and and all over Egypt. I mean, there is a very rich literary tradition. We had printing presses, we had a very rich heritage of journals, especially in the sort of in the 1880s, journal culture was booming. But what we didn't have, was the modern style bookstore with the cafe, the place that you would not just spend money, but more importantly, you would spend time. And I think that was Diwen's contribution. And it was in many ways, part of a larger movement. And I think we all drove each other on. You had more people who would look at someone like Alaa Aswani and say, well, I can write a novel too, and they would try. And then you had other people who would look at d and say, well, wait a minute, bookstores can be fun and they can be viable and they can be interesting. I'd like to open a bookstore too. And then you'd have people who would think, well, maybe I want to be a publisher. I think we were all part of a much larger movement and we all spurred each other on. This is something that I find utterly wonderful and breathtaking. This was the moment that I keep looking back at and thinking, how lucky was I to be there?
0: Yeah, so, so the concept was from the beginning, I guess, that it's so much more than just a bookstore, right? So much more than a place where you buy books. It's a community space. You mentioned the cafe. I, I imagine that was part of the original concept, to have a gathering place for people to come, spend time, buy books, but also share something together.
1: Well, in, in the, I think it's in the prologue of the book, yes, I talk about that moment when we were at dinner with our friends, Hanya and Zied, Ali and Nihal, and my sister and I. And when the answer was, oh, we'd open a bookstore if we could do anything. When we started dreaming of that bookstore, it was this idea of intent, that everything had to have an intention behind it. And so the name had to signify the the cultural message that we were trying to send. It had to have purpose, the logo, the interior, the location, the fact that the first Diwan was in Zamalek on a very, you know, a traffic artery, but also a pedestrian street. And the fact that, you know, normally bookstores weren't in these sort of high retail areas. But this was a commitment to the consumption and production of culture. We wanted to retail culture. We wanted to emphasize a shift in our attitudes towards cultural output, books, films, music, art, y- you name it. We were eager to showcase this. So when we think about it, the name Diwen, as I also said in the prologue, my mother came up with this. and. Um, It was her suggestion in the face of many, many failed ideas that Hind and Nihal and I were coming up with about the name of this bookstore. And so it it has different meanings in different languages and contexts. So in Arabic, Diwan Shear, and I think in Persian as well, is a collection or an anthology of poetry. It's also a meeting place, uh, a guest house, uh, a sofa, It's a title for a high-ranking official and diwani is a type of Arabic calligraphy. But I think, you know, back to basics, most importantly, this is a word that phonetically works in Arabic, English, French. It's easy to pronounce across cultures and languages. And so it worked. The fact that our logo is in sort of English letters, but the noon at the end is Arabic the fact that it's surrounded in diacritics, which is tashkil, which shows you in Arabic how to pronounce letters, where to put the emphasis. All of these things is a marriage, a mixture of cultures, civilizations, languages. On another level, also, the interior of the store, this idea of the brown mahogany shelves with this sleek, modern stainless steel finish, it was this marriage of old and new. It was the fact that we were trying to create an interior that mirrored the kinds of dialogues we were hoping to have on our shelves, in the books. In many ways, we were trying to also obliterate this idea that East, West, binary opposites, we wanted to have a conversation. We wanted to have a cultural conversation. And what better way of doing that than on shelves, with books, and where like-minded people, or actually not like-minded at all, would gather and through their own relationships with books, with the shelves, with one another, create something new. That's that's a beautiful
0: description of a bookshop, and I have to say we have the word divan also in, in Romanian. To us, it means now more um, a sofa, like an old style sofa. But when I heard that uh, your bookshop has this name, I thought more of going back to basics maybe being in your grandmother's house and uh, hearing her tell you a story on this uh, old style sofa. So it's very nice that across so many languages, it can have so many different meanings and can resonate differently with, with different people. So the shop was opened in 2002 if uh, if i'm not mistaken and within a decade it had stores across different locations i think 10 locations or so and a lot of employees so definitely a very successful endeavor now hearing you talk about it and how intentional you were about everything from the logo the name to how you design the space it's not that surprising that it became successful, but still we see a lot of independent bookstores struggling to keep one location open. So I wanted to ask you how you achieve the success and what do you think you owe this success to?
1: I'm going to have to disappoint you and problematize the idea of success. Please do. (laughs) You see in business, sadly, success is financial in life. Success is only success when other people see it. And Diwan has taught me that both of these statements are false. So Diwan is not a whopping financial success. But if we were to measure success on impact as opposed to income, Diwan is a success. I think it has touched the lives of its patrons of readers, of its staff, of everybody who over the last 20 years has worked there, I would argue that it has had an impact on all of us. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. I remember when we were struggling, because we did have many, many years of financial loss and struggle, and people would tell me what a success d was, I was struggling with imposter syndrome and I was thinking, well, it's a disaster. It's not, it's not a success, it's a complete disaster. But again, it's this idea of does success exist if other people are not there to witness it? And the answer is it does, but it is a deeply personal and internal state that I think only exists after tremendous amounts of failure and um, self-loathing as a result of that failure. So the less philosophical answer to your question is that I think we were very lucky and we worked very hard. I was reading Alain de Botton's um, School of Life and in it there's a very poignant chapter where he talks about the idea of success and failure and that In Greek tragedy, there was a much more benevolent approach to the idea of success and failure because characters like Oedipus. So Oedipus was generally a decent guy who was unlucky and made a couple of unfortunate decisions. In modern day parlance, we would classify him as a loser or as a failure, but actually he wasn't. It just so happened that context, luck, decision-making were not aligned at that time. And I think this is a, you know, Greek tragedy, as Alain de Botton says, gives us an outlook for a more benevolent approach to the ideas of success and failure. Whereas modern day outlooks are very judgmental and they're very output driven. And, and they're less benevolent, I think. And so, I mean, I can't take credit. I can say we worked ridiculously hard and I can say we were very lucky. And I can also say that our luck changed because, you know, in 2008, as luck often does, <laughs> in 2008, um, a global crisis started. And as a result of that, our currency suffered a devaluation. And as a result of that, the price of imported books went up and people had different priorities for their disposable incomes, which shrunk. You know, all of these things happen and you just have to deal with them. There is a problem, I think, when something is singular and you decide to make it plural. And this is one of the struggles, I think, that we have today in the current corporate climate that exists. So you open one shop in anything, or you have one venture. It proves successful. What is the automatic thing you do? Open more. That's not always the right formula, by the way. I mean, you know, I think there is something to be said for staying with the singular rather than having the urge to make it plural. It doesn't always have to be that way. I mean, the first diwan was one diwan for five years because we struggled with that idea. I mean, first of all, we struggled to sort of get it up and running. And then we struggled with the idea of, but we would dilute the authenticity of this. What we've managed to create here, are we able to replicate elsewhere? How much would we sacrifice to get this done? And these are all very important questions that I feel like in this age of maximization, we don't stop and ask enough. Or even if we do stop and ask enough, I don't think we can resist the urge of maximization, as I'm living proof of that at the moment. Yes, and especially when it comes to businesses, I think the
0: idea of success is always associated with growth. And as you said, financial success, first of all, and then everything else is a nice uh, side <laughs> side product. Um, and I completely agree that we should use other ways to, to measure that, especially when it comes to a place like a bookstore that has an impact on the community that brings something valuable to the world. So you mentioned already, obviously, the the times were changing around you as you were um, running the bookstores. And One particularly significant moment, I imagine, was the Arab Spring in 2011. I wonder, how does a bookstore go through a revolution? There was so much happening in Cairo at the time. What role did uh, did Diwan play in all of that?
1: Well, I think like um, with most cataclysmic moments, I think the seeds are well before the moment. And I think Diwan's role was probably from the very beginning as a space for people who want to learn, who want to think, who want to question, who want an access to a different worldview, to different people, to different cultures. And I think that was Di Wen's role. It was that space, that access point. I'd like to just step back. One of the things, one of the things that I struggled with in writing this book was that I Yes, it is set in Cairo. Yes, it is about the Cairo of 20 years ago. But I also wanted to merge the local with the global, because I'm interested in common ground, in the commonalities between people, between bookstores, between booksellers. When I think about bookstores today, I mean, I think we need to step back and actually acknowledge what a unique space bookstores are. They are private spaces where intensely public quests unfold. They are commercial spaces where you don't have to practice commerce. They are spaces where ages, genders, ethnicities, classes, everybody makes it these are spaces we really have to hold on to because with time and with capitalism and with so many fractured systems around us, these spaces are shrinking and there's something to really hold on to. And, and I think for me, Diwan was one of those spaces is one of those spaces and it was well, you know, I mean, I don't think its role changed drastically before the revolution during the revolution or after the revolution it is still the same space that serves multiple functions for multiple people
0: wasn't that amazing that you can build a space that can withstand even a revolution and <laughs> people can still find um, you know kind of a home in it i want to ask you And I apologize for the construction noise all around me. Um, And I might also be very wrong about this. It might just be my perception from not being from Egypt. But are there certain stereotypes in Egypt around the idea of women running a business? Did you face any of these? And if so, how did you tackle it?
1: Look, I think there are always stereotypes. And the reason that stereotypes will persist is because that they're useful. They simplify, they boil down. And sadly, they exclude a great deal. So I am not an exception in Egypt. I don't think I'm the rule either, because that would be another stereotype. But I think there are lots of women who are entrepreneurs and I would argue that most of the Egyptian women that I have worked with and have had the pleasure of getting to know, are entrepreneurs in their daily lives, in the sense that they, are, they might not own a business, but they are trying to maximize a return on effort and resources, however limited they may be. And that is a form of entrepreneurship. The more important issue I think here is one of context, because for me, being a woman did not get in my way. It might have been an obstacle for other people Uh, Other men and their perception of me, that's their problem. It's really not mine. I think things like ageism, which we don't talk about uh, so much, I think that is a problem. And, you know, I remember when we were starting out and meeting publishers or writers, journalists. I will tell you the first time I went to the London Book Fair and I was trying to negotiate terms with Uh, UK and US publishers, the overriding concern wasn't that I was a woman. The overriding concern was you're young and you have no industry knowledge, so why should we give you credit terms or why should we do this? And it was very clearly said to me, you know, let's transact a couple of deals and let's see how well you pay on time and, 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 and you're going to have to pay in advance and you're not going to be able to return anything. And then we can talk about credit. How how young were you when you started? Uh, Well, we started in 2002. So I was 28. And that ageism and this sort of concern over, well, and, and it's a valid concern. Sorry. No, the ageism is not a valid concern, but the absence of industry knowledge is a valid concern. And I can understand that. But at the end of the day, that was one of the things that we experienced across cultures. It wasn't just uniquely an outlook that we experienced in Egypt, it was one that was very prevalent in the UK and the US as well. So there you go. So I think in summary, the challenge wasn't gender, it was age.
0: And now, the bookseller's quiz. How many
1: books are in your shop? I have no idea. Probably in the many, many thousands, but um, whatever the number is, I hope we keep having more books.
0: What was your favorite book to sell in your shop?
1: Wagyi Rhali's Beer in the Snooker Club, written in English in 1964. And this was a a snapshot of Cairo at a certain moment in historical time, between revolutions and uh, between cultures. And I love introducing readers to that book.
0: What would you do if you couldn't work in the book industry anymore?
1: Would being a book PR person work or no? Is, well, that's it's okay.
0: The... <laughs> <laughs> it's a loophole, we'll take it, we'll take it. What book are you reading at the moment?
1: Chronicle of the Last Summer by Yasmina Rashidi. I've been reading it on and off for the last few months because I just have a habit of I read several books at the same time. I'm very close to the end and I almost don't want it to end. I'd like it to stay with me a little bit longer. And finally, what's your second favourite bookshop? Don'ts on Marlebon High Street for many, many reasons, but I just love the interior.
0: I'd like to talk about your your book now a bit because you, you already mentioned it and I, I actually came across your bookstore because I read about the book first. So it's called Shelf Life Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: I would love to. Uh, first and foremost, uh, it's a labor of love. In the prologue, I think it's well summarized to say that uh, Diwan was my love letter to Cairo, and Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller is my love letter to Diwan. So, the way the book is structured is that each chapter maps a section of the bookstore. So, in a sense, I'm walking you through my bookstore and my city. I think one of the things that I realize in hindsight is that I wrote it, I began writing this for myself. It actually helped that a lot of it was written during the year of the pandemic. And I didn't think of Dear Reader sitting on my shoulder, uh, whispering into my ear. There was very little of me thinking, what will so-and-so think if I say this? Or what, you know, because I was sort of, I was writing in a void. And yes, it is set in Cairo and it is about Diwan, but again, for me, it was always more about the universal, about how literature joins us across, you know, literature is the ultimate sort of compression of time and space because you can read the Iliad and the Odyssey and feel a connection like you can read George Orwell or you can read uh, Hilary Mantel's uh, new uh, book and feel a connection across time and space and this is one of the things I suppose that you know while the context of selling books in Cairo might differ from the context of a book dealer in Mongolia for instance I think there's a lot more that joins us than we realize and this is one of the things that I appreciate, you know, in your podcast and I appreciate in exploring in the world. And I wanted to ask you because one of the things I read
0: about the book and you mentioned it too is to celebrate uh, the Cairo that existed 20 years ago. What was that like if we were to imagine Cairo 20 years ago? What
1: was different? Well, I think you're gonna have to read the book for that, but... um... (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) You know, one of the things um, about the Cairo of twenty years ago and the character narrating the Cairo of twenty years ago is neither of them exist anymore. And I find it funny that uh, people come up to me and they assume that I'm still, you know, the 27-year-old of 20 years ago, and I'm clearly not because you know life happens and it weather's us and it tempers us and. Uh, So much has changed. But the Cairo of 20 years ago is extremely different from the Cairo of today and extremely similar in the sense that this is still a country, a culture, a land that is boiling over with people, with enthusiasm, with contradiction. I mean, I can't help it. Cairo is where my heart lives. It's where my heart will always live. Even if I'm physically not there, it's where I am there. And the bookstore has
0: also obviously evolved a lot during this time. Have the types of books that uh, that you now sell changed a lot from, uh, I I would imagine so. But how have the books in your shop
1: evolved this time? Well, I think when we first opened, we each had, you know, I did the English books. My sister uh, stocked the Arabic books. So we each had our own list of what we wanted to stock in each section. You know, this was the vision that you begin with. And then your customers educate you. And this is again, one of the many dialogues that were happening. I mean, dialogues weren't just happening between people in the cafe or between different books stacked next to one another. They were also happening between booksellers and customers and readers because, you know, A reader walks in and asks one of our customer service staff, do you have this book? Oh, no, we don't. Oh my God, how do you not have this book? You have to have this book. And in so many ways, I remember at the time, 20 years ago, uh, publishers would send book jackets. They would print out loads of book jackets and they would just send the book jackets with like the cover and the blurbs on the back. And this is how we picked books. It wasn't an online catalog at the time. It hadn't happened yet. And now, of course, you don't get any of that. It's much more ecologically friendly and, and, and to have online catalogs. I would sit and look at these things. And I would also get customers telling me, this is my favorite author. How, and and I, I knew nothing about self help books at all. And this was one of the, it became one of our biggest selling sections. And the self help section is entirely the result of uh, our partner Nihan Shao'i and our customers, who constantly came in asking for titles that I had never heard of. And I would get like customer order cards and I would sit there and look these things up and try and figure them out. And so, Reading tastes have changed, I think they have widened, and definitely I think the success of Diwen and Diwen's sort of uh, choices of books is 100% due to its customers.
0: This is something that always uh, impresses me about bookstores, how different they are than really any other kind of business, right? Because it's like you work in collaboration with your customers all the time. And what, what they need, you find out, then you have it, uh, and sometimes you will have things that they've never heard about, of course, and you surprise them, and they surprise you. It's a very nice uh, partnership, <laughs> I feel. Now I would like to talk a little bit about books before I let you go, because every time I have a bookseller on the podcast, I know that they're going to have great book recommendations and great
1: books that they're reading. Can you share with us some of your favorite books? I'd love to, but I'm also going to have to apologize in advance that it's extremely eclectic and haphazard.
0: That's even better.
1: Um, I'm, I have to confess that I started uh, my reading addiction in my very, very early, uh, I think almost preteens, on Enid Blyton's Famous Five and Secret Seven. Okay, And then I graduated up to Agatha Christie's Écule Poirot and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. So I was, um, you know, the murder mystery detective buff and then it stopped there. So (laughs) it shifted then into, you know, I love the poems and the sonnets of John Donne. I love the Arabian Nights and this kind of uh, narrative technique. So you have this kind of structure of a frame story and tales embedded in it in Boccaccio's Decameron and in Marguerite de Navarre's Heptameron. And these three are old school favorites of mine. Albert Camus, The Outsider, always, always going to be one of my uh, existentialist moments. Uh, Friedrich Dürrenmatt's The Visit. I don't know if many people are familiar with this. So Friedrich Dürrenmatt is a Swiss playwright. The Visit is a play and it's one of my favorite plays. And actually when I was thinking about favorite books. I'm very surprised that some of my favorites are plays and poems, and I would never have pegged myself as somebody who reads plays and poems, but over the years when I think of favorites, um, so also George Bernard Shaw, I love some of his uh, plays, uh, Mrs. Warren's Profession being one of them, Ibsen's A Doll's House. I'm a very, very big fan of Alain de in the nonfiction department, so The Architecture of Happiness, The Art of Travel, I just finished The School of Life, Alfred Lord Tennyson's The Lady of Shalott, one of my favorite poems. In terms of women's writing, Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, has changed the way I see the world. Uh, in terms of more Egyptian, Wagir ghali's Beer in the Snooker Club, one of my favorites as well as most of the writings of Naguib Mahfouz and Yusuf Idris, I don't think we can ever go wrong there. In terms of sort of um, Arab feminism, I'll never forget reading Nawal Sadawi's The Hidden Face of Eve. I might not necessarily agree with her, but I cannot refute the historical contribution that she made. In terms of contemporary um, writings, I I read uh, The Art of Hearing Heartbeats uh, a few years ago, and it's become one of my favorite and most moving reads. Recently, I read Martin Latham's The Bookseller's Tale, and I would love to recommend this book to you as somebody who is interested in bookselling and bookstores. It's fantastic. And I would definitely recommend Martin Latham on this podcast. I found the book fascinating, and I loved the academic interrogation of books, bookselling, bookstores, readers. I found it fascinating.
0: Yeah, and going back in time so much and seeing how books were discovered back in the days before bookshops, before libraries, that was really, really interesting. Um, And finally, I wanna ask you, if you were to write a second book, which I hope you will, what would it be
1: about? I think it would be about an Egyptian living in London. I always find reality far more fascinating than anything that my imagination can come up with. And this always brings to mind, I once heard uh, Hisham Matar, who's a writer that I I love reading. He once said, uh, Naguib Mahfouz asked him, do you write in English? And he said, yes, I do. So Nagib Mahfouz told him, then you belong to that language. But I also think that languages belong to us. We make them our own as we make places our own. And I like sort of, I I want to explore more this idea of assimilation, appropriation, and the sort of the hybridity of, of our lives and of everything around us. That is something that interests me, but um, as, as I've learned from shelf life, books often end up writing themselves. I think we have very little to do with it at the end, or, or, or where we start is very different from where we finish.
0: And did you write shelf life in, in English right. originally?
1: Or? Yes, I did. Yes.
0: I think that's, that's really um, fascinating, I've always been kind of fascinated with the idea of how you take a language that is not your own, it's not your native tongue, and you transform it because you have these other languages in your head as well. And then, even though you master the language very well, you will never speak it as a native speaker, which is great, because you speak it differently with your own flavor, with your own insights from other parts of your brain <laughs> that have other languages stored there. And writing a whole book in a language that is not your own, but that you clearly master completely, I think it's it's really, um, it's a great achievement. And I'm very much looking forward to to reading the book. It has been published, uh, was it this month or was it in September that it was published?
1: Well, um, it came out in the US on October 5th, but the Italian translation and the German translation both came out in September. So it's very funny that the translations preceded the original, but There you go, books have a life of their own, always.
0: (laughs) Great. Well, I'll definitely put your book plus all the books you've recommended in our um, show notes. Thank you so much for for joining us today and for having this great conversation. And uh, yeah, look forward to reading your second book as well.
1: Thank you, Antonia. It was a pleasure to talk books, bookstores, cities with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to God Books. Tune in next Friday for more insights from the world of books. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find us by searching for God Books Podcast.